0: Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own world views. Today, I would like to introduce you to Alex Williams. Alex's career focuses on caring for people as an EMT, a birth doula, a home health care provider, and in law enforcement. She is now the founder and CEO of Holistic Hyperbarics. So I'm excited to have Alex here to talk about career, work, along with just everything else that she's got going on. So thank you so much, Alex. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience more about you? I mean, but how long do we have? It's a whole thing. Um, Thank
1: you so much for having me. Um, it's, It's always fun to do these podcasts that are not so much structured in what you do and more about who you are because i think that who you are is really a guiding light to everything you do within reason there's a lot of privilege in the world and you have to do stuff that you can't really do but you know it's um it's nice to have a more relaxed atmosphere
0: so why don't you start with telling us a little bit about you know who you are and why, you know, your career does focus on caring for other people. Cause I feel like that's probably a bit of a foundational point for you.
1: Yeah. um, Let's take it back. Uh, I am the granddaughter of Black Panthers um, and they are children of the South. And I guess it starts with them. They came here in our nation's greatest immigration, which was the great black migration from the south to the west and the north um, for better economic opportunities. And they came from the south to the west coast and they worked um, in the shipyards and on our bus system here. They saved every penny. And during that time, we were going through a lot of civil rights changes. And the mecca of those civil rights movements was in Oakland. Um, and they joined the movement. They primarily worked in um, the food service that fed people and helped to teach kids in school. Um, and they saved all their money and they opened up a barber shop where um, they cut hair on Sundays. And then they saved more money and opened another barber shop. And soon they had four within a few years. And they sold all of those barbershops in the 1970s and opened a liquor store that is actually still standing in Berkeley, California. I tell you all of this to tell you that I came into the picture in the 80s and um, I'm the only granddaughter um, on that side and the oldest grandchild. And so when my parents divorced and I was up in the Berkeley area um, to visit my father Every weekend, I would go and work in their liquor store. And at a very young age, I'm talking like five, <laughs> I learned about pints and quarts. I learned about different kinds of liquors and what the colors meant. I learned how to roll quarters. And um, I was forced to talk to customers. I had a really bad stutter when I was a kid. And they didn't care. <laughs> they, they in fact... Um, never took an excuse from me. So I would say I can't reach the counter. And they gave me a stool. In fact, it's a stool that's in my very office right now that I still have, so that I can reach the counter and speak to customers. And when I stuttered and talked too fast, they would make the customer wait until I gathered myself and I could talk to them. Um, And everything I knew about business and taking care of people and taking care of one's assets and all of that, um, came from them. And so with that backdrop, um, I worked there every weekend until I was in my teens. Um, and if we look back at how this country has been really clearly focused on minorities for cigarette smoking ads, they were addicted to cigarettes at a very young age and died, in my opinion, relatively early from all the worst things that cigarettes do. Um, and it's so sad because I didn't get to ask them all the cool questions. I'm just now learning and understanding how cool that journey was for them. Um, and when they were actually around and cognizant, I was a young teenager and just didn't know anything. Right. And wanted to hang out and play with my stuff and not care. And it's actually now in my thirties, I realized, Ooh, my grandparents were amazing. They were amazing. Um, I graduated from high school and started uh, working in home healthcare. loved it, loved working with my hands, loved working with people, um, and I wanted to do more. I went back to school and became an EMT and did that uh, for about 10 years. And during that time, I had um, friends and friends of friends who were having children and wanted to have better advocacy in the hospitals, um, women of color, uh, people of color who are birthing children um, often aren't listened to, um, and we have a higher mortality rate inside of uh, those areas. And I knew as an EMT, I could do that. And so I went back to school to become an EMT. And during that time, I also went through my doula training. And so I started doing home birthing and um, uh, being an advocate for patients. I call myself a birth tour guide because. Um, the tour is always different, but I've seen a bunch of tours and I can be there as a level head. Um, and so I did that for a very long time, um, along with working as an EMT and then our country got a little bit worse. And I don't know if it got worse or maybe we started looking at it more, but names started popping up names. We know very well now, like Trayvon Martin, like Michael Brown, like these names that we will know forever. Um, and what I saw was a disconnect between people and the people that are supposed to be protecting them. And I'm not scared of firearms. I grew up with them because my grandparents um, and I'm not scared of conflict because I always think that conflict is just a learning experience. And there's always a way out and through and that people come from all types of life. And if you're able to think about where they're coming from, you might be able to solve the conflict So I thought going into law enforcement would be the right place for me to help. And I think in your twenties, you have these amazing views of like, I'm going to save the world. So let me become a police officer so that I can just save the whole system. There'll be no, you know, Elijah McLean. or so there won't be any, uh, and we're laughing and it's terrible, but it's true. Like in your twenties, you're just like, I'm going to solve these huge problems because duh. Um, and what you don't realize, cause you're in your twenties is that systems grind and they continue to grind for a reason. Um, And there was no difference in law enforcement in that. I had a wonderful and terrifying and formative experience in uh, the police academy. I will never forget that time. Um, I learned a lot about human behavior and how our system is crippled, even from the beginning of of training for law enforcement officers. I loved it and hated it and would never go back and would go back in a breath. Um, It's a very complicated relationship. But when I got out, I realized that the work that I wanted to do about restorative justice and working to change the system wasn't possible in the way that we have American law enforcement. And that was hard and heartbreaking and kind of how luck will have it. When I was considering leaving law enforcement, I tore my shoulder as a wrestler. During this time, I had been a avid athlete. Um, I was a sponsored Ironman triathlete for seven years and retired from that and got into wrestling. I tore my shoulder wrestling, And, uh, my triathlon coach had a hyperbaric chamber that I used. I remember it being able to heal my shoulder or being able to heal the the aches and pains that I had when I was doing triathlon. So I thought maybe I could heal my shoulder because my doctor, um, told me I to take some aspirin and walk it off basically. Um, and that I should really just stop wrestling, which was not an answer. So, um, I went to centers around this area. Hyperbaric centers and they're not really built for people like me who was just looking for alternative reasons for the chamber i didn't really feel welcomed and so um i went home and i emptied my savings and i bought one for myself and i used my house and to make a very long story short my friends started coming over to use it then their friends of friends started coming over to use it and everyone wanted to come and try the spaceship the oxygen spaceship and um I sat down with two friends shortly after all that was going on when I had like a lockbox in my house and people were coming to my house to use this chamber. And I said, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm committed to learning more and I have medical background, but I think this is a thing for more than just the insurance-based stuff and I want to try. And they wrote me a check to start the business and that was almost seven years ago. We are, we went from that chamber, non-medical grade chamber in my house to now seven medical-grade chambers in a facility that takes insurance. We are the highest-rated facility in the United States in customer reviews, and our work is really focused in on continuing the work of all the people that have led me to be here, which is caring for people, making sure that their lives and their needs are visible, and trying to connect them with care if we can't do it. And so that's what's led me all the way here to you, Sarah. Um, and it's been a long journey, and I'm humbled by all the people who have brought me here. But I have a very clear path of what I do. I hope that wasn't too long. I just went for it.
0: No. I think it all made a lot of sense. and it's it's clearly this journey. I mean, you can see how one thing ties into another. I definitely want to get back to the uh, the oxygen spaceship, as you know, your your friends <laughs> yeah. called it uh but i want to start back kind of where when you were an emt and a doula you mentioned how people of color you know aren't necessarily treated well in health systems um it's not an uncommon experience unfortunately i'm curious you know what the environment is like in those situations are Are patients ending up being surrounded by white people that then, you know, someone like yourself, who's like, I'm going to help advocate for you. That it's like, you really need those additional people than just the the patient themselves.
1: I think, unfortunately, Sarah, it's a multifaceted problem. Um, We are all born with bias. We all have racism. Anyone who tells you different is crazy or doesn't realize what's happening in the world. I am racist, I have biases. What I've realized being in that space was that we are not just fighting people's biases, but we're also fighting old medicine and institutionalized medicine. We're now trying to do better, but it wasn't that long ago, mm-hmm. less than a lifetime ago, when we believed that women, black women, could take more pain than white women. And that was, that was a study, right? That, is, that was taught in medical schools only stopped being taught in medical schools while I am still alive. While I was still alive, I'm only 38 years old. And so we have these very old preconceived notions about um, racist things um, about people. And I think there are two facets to that, the professional side where that misinformation is passed down in a training way. But I also think that because we live with these biases um, internally, they can come from a, a, a dinner room table, um, you know, how how families are grown up and how families talk about certain things. And there also is just not a lot of a knowledge, right? And I think we're scared of each other for some reason to not talk about these things. And I think then it perpetuates more problems. And so getting more microscopic, when these women are in the room, they're already coming in a defensive stance, which, as we know, is really hard for childbirth. And so... I tell them, look, uh, treat me as your safari guide. I've been on many safaris. I can't tell you if we're going to see lions or bears. I can tell you when to look up. I can tell you when to close your eyes. And I can advocate for your needs. I can tell I can tell the driver when to stop. Um, and maybe we can't stop because of things, but I'm going to do my best. And what that does, I hope, is it allows the people involved in the birth to take Take that weight off of them to know that I'm watching, that if there is a bias that comes up or something that's not in their birth plan that comes up, I'm right there to speak to it so that they can just be focused on the last time they're going to be not parents, right? Or when a family is actually changing, that's a beautiful and spiritual moment that you should be wrapped into. But because they have to have this very clear defensive stance around their health, because black women just die. Um, And, you know, my cousin who had a baby in October, just before we opened this new facility, she almost died. Right. And so the science is not there. Society is not quite there. And so you're almost like this linebacker for the person giving birth. Now. In many times, nothing happens and I'm just there as an ornament and I love that. And I take pictures and nothing happens. But in critical times, I'm a voice.
0: Are you still doing
1: doula work? Yeah, I can't say no to people, <laughs> which is a problem. Um and my board wish that I would because when the birth happens, I have to just go. I have to leave. Um I have one birth on my docket. I have promised my board to not take any more. Um I just don't say no to black women. <laughs> like when they call, I don't say no to them because um doula work is still undervalued. Doula work should be covered by insurance. Um, and because it's not and limited resources and socioeconomics, and intergenerational wealth and racism, it's hard for people to afford this service for everything that it is. So I'm inexpensive. I'm available and I'm knowledgeable. I've done over 50 births. And when my friends want help, I can't say no. So I have one birth that actually, ironically, she's due tomorrow. Um, not like she's coming tomorrow, but she's due tomorrow. Um, and so I might be doing a birth over the weekend. We'll see.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I think it's, it's great eat, that you, you still do that for, you know, friends and family, uh, even if, you know, life gets busier and, you know, but you're, you're that great support network, uh, for these women. So I'm sure they greatly appreciate it. And I'm also curious to know, because all of this kind of builds and the caring for others, being there for other people. But you started out, you know, as a young child in a liquor store. Do you have other people in your family who are in health or in law enforcement? Or were you kind of paving your own path here? Well, I just want to go briefly back to the liquor store
1: because, um, you know, it's on this corner and um, it often serves the job of many things. It wasn't just people that were coming in to get some alcohol for the weekend. We still have an unhoused issue in the Bay Area that is astronomical. And of course, that's also really much, really, really, really uh, tied into poor mental health services um, and the general um, displacement of people. And so, where I really saw that was in how my Grandparents treated people with dignity, people who couldn't pay or people who were unhoused and needed things. And um, I think that was my very first formative um, relationship to that. Also, my grandmother um, worked in nursing homes and we knew about that work. It was hard work, but she enjoyed it. And she's a Christian woman. And she's an immigrant. That's my mother's mother. So my father's is the Blanthers. my grandmother was an immigrant from South America. Um, And I knew about that kind of caretaking, but we were always raised to put others in front of yourself um, if you have the privilege to do it. Um, And so I didn't have direct examples of healthcare um, really, um, but I knew that I wanted to work with my hands. I knew that I wasn't scared of conflict. Um, And I knew that I wanted to work in emergent situations because it doesn't raise my blood pressure. My whole thing is like, emergencies are just quick things you have to solve. They're just quick problems you have to solve. Um, And conflict is just about understanding everything.
0: Yes, you have this very calm nature, it seems about you, that I think puts you in a good position or emergencies, conflict that I think a lot of people would would tend to struggle with.
1: It's scary. It doesn't stop being scary on the inside, but I've learned also from my grandparents, like showing that kind of emotion sincerely doesn't help the situation. Um, so it's been, I've had that gift and not a lot of people do. And even when the ones that do train with us, especially like in law enforcement,
0: it, it can't be taught. now you mentioned how you were a triathlon a sponsored triathlon and you were also a wrestler um i think most people when they think about wrestling think about men's sports but (laughs) it's not like women's wrestling doesn't exist so can you share a little bit how you got into that athleticism
1: um sure i think my weight has fluctuated a lot as a human And there is a weird and crazy culture that really fosters skinny people. Um, And I got into triathlon and became a triathlete. Um, I was watching it on TV with my dad one day. Um, The Ironman was on TV. It was like a Sunday in the fall. And, you know, there was like a thousand Mel Gibson movies on, but like the only thing to watch was Ironman. And I thought how crazy is this race? I had never seen a triathlon before. I had never watched one before. And uh, we watched it. And at the end of it, I was like, I need to do that. And I don't think my dad believed me. Um, and I'm the kind of seven persons when you say I can't do it. And I, I know that I can, I have put every resource. So um, I bought a triathlon bike that had clip in pedals. And at the time I didn't know that shoes clipped into pedals. And that was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um I, I I could swim, I could run and I can bike, but not to that level. And I just built myself up. And during that time I ended up losing over a hundred pounds and then became really good. Not good enough that I would say that I should have been sponsored, but it was like more the story than it was like me being great. Like I only podiumed once and it was like not that many people to beat to get to the podium. So I'm not going to say that I'm like a beast, but the one thing in me was that I never quit. Um, and the discipline I miss the discipline. I miss the waking up at 4 a.m. and working out until seven and then working on the ambulance for a 10 hour shift and then coming home and swimming a mile and a half in our in, in the pool and then, you know, eating food and like watching uh Law and Order SVU and then cutting everything off at like nine o'clock to like do it all again. I miss those times. But um yeah, I um when I did Iron Man, I told myself I'd do it a few times and then I would retire and I did it. I did it a few times and I was like, yeah, just, I think I'm done. Um, it's a lot. It's expensive. It's hard. Um, there wasn't a lot of people of color that was doing it at the time. So it was weirdly lonely. Um, and then I switched to wrestling, which I did in junior high school. Not great. They called me the pancakes. I would just like flop on people when I was in high school. Um, but, uh, as an adult, um, with, Agility and ability, and a little bit of um, athletic prowess from doing triathlon. I just joined an adult league. And no, it's not like, you know, The Rock or anything like that where we're coming in and we're having a soap opera. It is, um, it's like Greco Roman. Everyone's in spandex with headgear, wrestling. And what I loved about wrestling, and everyone tried to get me into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, um, I hate Jiu Jitsu because your object is to hurt the person. In wrestling, it's this very romantic moment where you and hopefully your opponent has trained to a level in which both you have the same weight, but if you did the homework and the work to understand how to move the body to eliminate the other person, um, it's a meeting of the minds. And you're not hurting them. If you're hurting them, you're doing it absolutely wrong, and it should end. Um, If you're doing it right, it's two professionals coming together to best each other mentally. Um, and that's what I loved about it. Um, and then, of course, I had this damn business, and then everything's gone to crap. <laughs> because, you know, the business is like a child and it takes your whole life.
0: So I miss it every day. So, do you think you'll have the chance to get back into wrestling or some mm-hmm. other unknown yet athletic feat?
1: I need to be less ambitious. I don't say that to be cocky. It's like maybe a cry for help. If someone's out there, please come help me. Um, I'm tired of the healthcare system and how it's built. I've now been in it for long enough to understand that it doesn't have to be this way. The largest amount of diabetic amputations is in East LA. And when you look at how that correlates to how it erodes intergenerational wealth, I don't care what color you are. It's a direct correlation. And we know that the people who are suffering the most from that have been suffering of other discriminations in this crazy country that we're in. But that one disease can be solved, but um, we don't do enough. And so it's things like that that keep me up at night. And then I try to build programs around it and try and get investors around me. And that's why I started my nonprofit to see if someone out there shares my vision. because there are simple problems that these chambers solve that if i was completely fiscally unleashed we could make instrumental change and perhaps restore whole generations of people to their wealth and so if i can turn that part off i can go back to wrestling um, now i just have to suffice with like my 45 to 50 minutes in the gym a few times a week when i can steal myself in the morning and have the discipline to go to bed on time um, I have a beautiful wife, two hairless cats, and one hairless dog that kind of makes the house crazy until like 1130 at night. Um,
0: yeah, I would do it. But no, there's too much to do. I think that comes with some territory sometimes as growing older, finding that balance in life. Now you mentioned, you know, again, kind of these chambers and how they can be really life changing. So can you share a little bit of the maybe... The science, the medical behind these chambers, uh, but not at the wholly scientific level that uh, I can understand it.
1: <laughs> no, I got you. I got you. We're going to go a couple places. We're going to go into the sky and then we're going to go into a soda bottle. Okay. Um, at its most base level, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is the application of pressure and oxygen. And we are so fragile as human beings. We do really well at sea level. When you start mixing that up, um, we get very fragile. And hyperbaric is the ability for this therapy to deliver around 1,200 times more oxygen molecules than you can breathe in every breath. And I want you to think about your body um, as a capitalist society. So just think that everything within your body requires oxygen and as we get older we have more construction everywhere that we need to pay for but everything we do costs money me talking to you you listening to me it all takes cellular energy our currency is oxygen it helps us make that energy so whether you're healing or you are um, performing it is all part of it so when we think about how essential oxygen is, of course we want more of it. What's in your pocket? How many dollars do you have in your bank account? What if I told you I can give you twelve hundred times more? You'll perform better. That's the base level of what hyperbarics is. How does it work? We'll keep it as simple as soda. Um, you know when you go to the go to the store? I don't know. Have you ever drank uh, Coca Cola before? Mm. I'm sure you were like, you know, we're not we're not far in age, so I'm sure you went to like. Um, you know, the kids' parties where the, um, where they handed out like the two liter jugs of soda, right? And when you get them off the shelf, you don't see any bubbles in them at all, right? You just see what looks to be flat soda. What happens when we open it? Bubbles. They come out of virtually nowhere. They expand and then they bubble to the top. That's called the croak effect. The movement of gas through our body now when you're getting into the chamber i'm bottling you your soda i'm putting you in the chamber and i am forcing more gas into your fluid i'm making those gas molecules smaller and closer together so that you can take in more of them all at once and as that as that pressure increases you get more oxygen molecules and then as i decrease the pressure at the very end all of that oxygen then flows deep into your tissues. It doesn't come out your pores. That's not really how it goes. It goes further into your body, delivering more oxygen to tissues. Just think about if you have like an open wound or you have issues with circulation, it helps with all of that. It also helps to upregulate genes and downregulate genes. So you and I can sit here and talk about how all the ways it does the things. But basically, I always say hyperbarics heals nothing, but is the catalyst to everything. Um, and that's what we do here, is we catalyze the body to work optimally. And we do that by giving you more cellular cash. I hope that made some sense.
0: I think it did. Yeah, it's, you know, as medicine and the world of health does change and hopefully get better, um, there's all these different things that that end up out there. And it sounds like you're doing some great work and you mentioned how for your personal journey, it started with kind of you buying your own machine and it seems like it, you weren't really able to go somewhere um, because of kind of your situation in the need that you had. So are you helping because you said you're now taking insurance at your your business? Are you helping people with like, are they always having doctor referrals or can someone like kind of like walk in off the street of like, Hey, I'm having this issue. Might you be able to help?
1: I like kind of, yes, no, both (laughs) there. Um, hyperwarics have been around for actually over 400 years, um, and used, uh, uh, in a clinical sense, uh, in the sixties and seventies. Right. And we started to see insurance reimbursement in the eighties. Um, I did tear my shoulder and I went to facilities and, they're not built for conditions like myself, but I read enough to understand that this was just a building block issue. This was just me not having enough oxygen to, feel, to heal my shoulder. I know that it helps rebuild tissue. I know that it helps with bringing down inflammation, but most centers are really focused in on what is covered by insurance, which is only 14 conditions. Now, you pointed out that we take insurance. We do, because our cash pay patients um, we try to keep our price as low as possible for our cash pay patients. These are patients that don't have one of the 14 conditions, like concussions, like strokes, like COVID-19 long haul. They wouldn't be able to access this therapy without somewhere affordable to use it. And all of those conditions have a wealth of um, studies to back up um, all of um what's clearly the results from hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but they're not covered by insurance. We take insurance because I want to do my best to have as many chambers available for people that have diabetic wounds. It's my passion of mine. Um, But it also allows us to be as flexible as possible for our cash pay patients who span the gamut between
0: fertility and Lyme disease. And so you're up to seven chambers in seven years. So what has it been like growing the business? I
1: would like my life back. (laughs) Um, uh, you know, I, I don't have children and I, I don't think I will have them, but I've had one. Um, and this has all been pushed by patients. This was never supposed to be my plan. My plan was to heal my shoulder and go back to work as a law enforcement officer everything shifted. And what I found was that the work that I wanted to do helping people was right really in my spare room in that chamber. And so the growth has always felt natural. At the same time, it feels like a horrendous, terrible earth um, that seems to not be crowning ever. Um, patients want more. So... They wanted to do IVs. So we've gotten a, a person, we have a person here that now does IVs, a doctor that does IVs. Uh, people were looking to have insurance coverage, and we did that. Um, it has been breathless and it has been really hard. Um, the pace of medicine and the future of medicine um, is often breathless. And especially with hyperbaric medicine, especially with COVID, it's been even faster because we're recognizing how much this therapy can do in so many different cases. And so my gaze is further than where it is right now, but I'm also just trying to tread water
0: and go to bed on time. (laughs) And you mentioned a wife and some pets. So what has the support been like at home as you've been building this up and, you know, kind of changing your future trajectory? Um, I am blessed with a person
1: that sees me completely and i that is a a, a kindness and a and and, and and a privilege that i I know that most people won't ever find in this world, but I found it She is a person that no matter how many hats I wear or no hats at all, I am loved for exactly who I am and she she lights my life, my wife um, she never asked for me to do any of this. And we have been together for 10 years and this company turns seven in May of this year. And so for a large part of our time, it's been me chasing this star that we don't know how bright it's gonna continue to get. And so um, I am grateful and it has taken a toll on us and I don't know where that takes us. but I'm grateful for our marriage. We've been married for five years, together for 10. Um, and yes, I have an affinity for hairless animals. Um, I have two hairless cats, um, Clyde and Thelma, um, and I have a hairless dog named Olive. Um, there's, we're, not, we're not allergic. If people ask that question also, the allergen is in their saliva, which is still present. Um, I just think they feel cool, <laughs> and they're very smart, um, and they're fun. So yes, we have. I have a, also a huge community. It, I, I believe that an entrepreneur it takes a village to raise them and keep them sane. And I am blessed to have the community that I have that continues to say keep going. And I keep telling them no, leave me alone, and they say keep going, and I keep going. Um, they're, they've they've kept me alive. So. Um, I think without a support system like that, this kind of exponential growth, um, is impossible to go from making less than 50 K in our very first year to hitting seven figures, um, is in just a a feat. Um, and you don't do that without them. And I think the only other group that I would be remiss to talk about would be my staff that some of them have been there the whole time. Um, and most of them have come along the way, but no one's short of two years with me. And, um, because I can't be everywhere all at once, they are the beautiful extensions of what we believe healthcare should be. So yeah, the village is strong. Um, and it has to be because I fall hard (laughs) on them. Well,
0: and I was going to ask about your staff, you know, to see if they all have medical backgrounds and what it was like for them to come into a new venture as, as a growing business, you know, you just kind of gave some financial statistics and, you know, taking that step into something that's growing that you don't know, you know, you've got one CEO who's building this up, like what it was like for them and their background. Um, We
1: have, uh, two types of staff that are downstairs now. Um, we have hospitality, which I thought was always important to have in our center, which were people who were just focused on the comfort um, of our patients, and they come in with no ma- no background. Um, they come in just ready to work, um, and then we have our medical staff. So that's our EMTs that are running the chambers, and then our uh, our physicians who are writing scripts and protocol, and myself. <laughs> And so um, it's not for the faint of heart to be in a startup. Yes, we've made seven figures, but we're all still in the red. Um, We have a lot of ground to to make up and we need help. And even now where we sit in this beautiful place that um, sits ironically in the same place where I went to massage school when I was 17. Um, it's the same exact building, same exact suite. Um, we, we are trying to find our footing for insurance right now. We're only three months in and we're learning. Um, and I have to do my job as kind of their caretaker and their mom <laughs> um, and also just their leader to make sure that they're taken care of at all times. And um, sometimes I fail. And it's really hard. come to them and tell them that i failed and it's humbling when they're able to say that's okay and we're here for
0: you to have that support really shows the kind of leader that you are so it's great to hear that you have this support network outside of work inside of work um, and they're there for the growing business so what is it like you know being the ceo So, you're not necessarily always on the front line. You mentioned, you know, kind of being the parent to your staff and making sure, you know, you're taking care of them. What is it like being a CEO?
1: Also, never thought I'd be doing this, right? Um, I'm a clinician, I'm a worker, I'm a hands in person, I'm a doer. So, I'm in an office right now. Um, I'm in an office and there's like chairs next to my office for people to come in and sit with me. Um, It's a very different role than I thought that I would ever be in. Um, my, my, my role is about like thought leadership and moving us forward fiscally and making sure everything's paid versus sitting and talking to patients. I am lonely up here sometimes. Um, I sneak down all the time to just go and talk to patients and sometimes I just sit there. I sit downstairs in the operations area where my staff is. and I'm sure they hate that because um, they would like want to talk and look on their phones and I'm sitting there and they're like, why is the boss here? Because um, I just want a piece of it. I want a piece of what, what is the thrum of the space. Um, and I miss that sometimes, although my touches in the space were all mine. Um, I'm a clinician. I like to get my hands dirty. Being a CEO that's just very, it's very hard, um, very lonely. Um, and there is so much weight to it, um, especially if you're doing it right. And especially if you're doing it in the pursuit of actually helping a lot of people, I think of billionaires and no billionaire gets there without like hurting a lot of people along the way to get there. Um, And I recognize that me getting here has taken a lot of sacrifice for a lot of different people. Um, So I weigh that on my head and I think about my employees and their future. And how can I, how can I get them healthcare? How can I, push them to go to school? How can I help them? I have one person downstairs who wanted to be a medical examiner. And I called a medical examiner's office to see if I could get her into doing like an internship. And I I try to, and I shouldn't, but I do it a lot, stay involved in their life because I don't think that this job is it for them. And I had a, I was blessed with a lot of like strong female mentors when I was really young in my young twenties that they were like, Go and do these things and figure out what you want to do. And although I don't feel like they're stuck downstairs, they're content. And as an employer, I want to keep them because they're all amazing. As like their big sister mama bear Mm. trying to do the right. I'm just like, go away from me. Take your knowledge and your experience and I'll write you the best letter and keep moving forward. Um, And so there's that tug of war, too. But um, if you ask me, which you might, so I'm going to preempt it, um, if I would do this all over again, don't know what the answer would be. I don't know if it would be yes. Now, I've had the privilege to help a lot of people, and people's lives have changed because of what I built and what I'm still building and what I'm planning to do next. Um, but it's taking my life in exchange. I don't really have one. It's, it's this business and my marriage, um, and I miss it, but that is the price of
0: sometimes what you have to do. If you believe something, I think it's so important and great to hear how vulnerable you are with like the reality of your situation, what you want for your employees and, you know, like where you see the future going. And you briefly mentioned starting a nonprofit. There, which I kind of gleaned and assumed that it was to help support the business, to help you get out of the red. Whether or not that's correct, I would like to know more about this nonprofit.
1: I don't think you can do it like that. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, hyperbaric for the people is what it's called. Um we have so many people where the healthcare industry has failed them. And we can't Take everyone who can't pay. I have to pay these kids. Um, I need video games. <laughs> um, I need a way to to subsidize people. I need breathing room to help the people that I want to help. Um, and I think that's the first goal. The next goal for me is to start to fund the research that I've been doing just in my own free time without it actually being funded and audited by professionals. But we keep data on all of our patients, of course it is volunteer, Um, understanding what they're coming in for, what their outcomes were, how they're feeling day to day. And I think that kind of information has been really empowering to then tell a woman who's coming in for um, uterine lining uh, support where their uterine lining has gotten so thin they can't support the implantation of an egg. We work with fertility doctors to bring those patients in during a protocol of um, IVF and sometimes other protocols too. For me to be able to say to her or them rather that um, we know that if you do between 10 and 15 sessions day after day, at this setting of pressure, at this setting of oxygen, um, with this protocol, we know we have a 90 some percent rate of success. And so I think the strength in that gives more consumer confidence, which if you're making choices around spending this money on something else for something else, we don't really have that, um, that kind of guarantee, or at least, uh, facts, um, from the general healthcare system. And so, I'm strong in that I'm strong in making sure patients can get this care surprise or completely free so that they can get their lives back. Um, and I really want to tackle diabetic wounds on a scale that hasn't been seen yet.
0: Great. They're all very important things and you're doing it in the right way um, to hopefully better these systems. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? Mm-hmm. Oh boy.
1: As successful as this company has been and really the evolution of my um, time into it, it is all so very fragile. We live um, in a capitalist society, not just our bodies, but um, in this country. And um, it is difficult to live the values that I'm trying to live with my company. And there is a reason why the centers around me didn't take cases like mine because they make more money doing so, doing other things. Um, And I would tell people, I think the only thing I would tell them is that, yeah, we're working hard to stay alive and to keep this going because it's important. Um, And if they have things in their life that has that kind of importance um, to fight for it, no matter what it is, because that's what I have found to be in a compass is, fighting for taking care of people and that has been my compass since the very beginning so
0: definitely well I appreciate you sharing all of that and you've got such a fascinating story so I've really appreciated getting to learn more and now at the end of all my episodes as I promised before we started recording I do ask all my guests a random question Oh, my. So my question okay. for you is, what emoji needs to either be added or gotten rid of? I wasn't sure, you know, what might come oh. to mind, so you can do either. you can do both. Take your time to think on it.
1: um no, i'm I'm clear. um I'm, I'm ready for it. Um as a lesbian, I do not encounter many penises in my life. It's just not what i I do. I don't work with penises in healthcare, and all the penises that come to my clinic are covered. So I don't spend much time, but, um, so I would get rid of the eggplant because I have a lot of straight friends or, um, people who have sex with penis having people, um, and, um, they don't look like eggplants. They really don't. And so I feel like when we use an eggplant, it's just rude, um, to eggplants because I eat them and they're a little bit more stubbier than, you know, actual penises from what I understand. I don't spend too much time with them, but um, so I would get rid of, I, I guess maybe the movement of using eggplant for Dick, um, is what I would say.
0: All right. That brings this episode to a close. If you would like to connect with Alex's business, uh, her website and Instagram will both be in the description. So you can learn more about the success and treatments that they are working with. And if you'd like to connect with alex directly her linkedin will be there as well so feel free to connect with her and if you would like to connect with the podcast our website is in the description we are on linkedin facebook and instagram so feel free to support those pages if you would like to support the podcast monetarily there is a link to do that as well and if you'd like to be a guest on the show and share your story my email is in the description that is always the best way to reach out to me So thank you so much, Alex, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Thank you, Sarah. It's been an honor. Bye.